I don't know if you've ever had the experience of reading a really, really good book, and as you got closer and closer to the end, you just wanted to slow it down, slow it down, slow it down. Anybody else? Yeah. Because uh, and I, uh, we just want, want it to last and last, and I have to say that's the way that I felt with this series uh, called Major Truth from the Minor Prophets. I really had no idea how uh, profoundly the Lord would be speaking to me and would be speaking uh, to us uh, as people of God. And so it's been a, a wonderful experience. We've been building this gallery of uh, the Minor Prophets, and we're almost complete with that. We have just one more that we'll, we'll be dealing with today. And um, it occurred to me as I was uh, reflecting on this whole series uh, that each one of the minor prophets uh, asks a specific question. Really, it's the Lord asking a specific question through the writing and the preaching of each one of these prophets. And I thought, as, as we phrase it a little bit differently, we can kind of review what the Lord has been doing uh, in, this, in these messages for us. And so uh, in Hosea, the question is, will you be faithful to me? You remember it was all about faithfulness. And Hosea was told by the Lord, I want you to marry this woman. And oh, by the way, she will be unfaithful to you, repeatedly unfaithful to you. And you will agonize over that and you will understand what it's like for me when you turn away from me, when you walk out on me. What it's like for me uh, when you bring idols into your life and worship other things. Uh, we looked at Joel and in Joel the question from the Lord uh, was, will you trust me even in times of disaster? Uh, they were in the midst of a terrible, terrible plague of locusts. You know, it's really something that we could uh, connect with and understand uh, because of the things that we deal with today. Will you trust me even in the midst of uh, disaster? Amos, the question was, will you replace the empty noise in your heart with my voice? Amos is the one who is most critical of worship practices that become repetitive. And he says, you know, what you're doing is just kind of like noise to me. What I want is you. I want you, I want an intimate relationship with you that you will hear my voice. Obadiah, the Lord asked this question, will you allow me to use your weakness to display my strength? It's not a, it's not a message that's unfamiliar to us. We see it in people like Gideon and people like uh, David who goes against Goliath. And the, the Apostle Paul talks about it, that in my weakness, uh, his strength is made known. But it's very, very powerful to hear that here in the Old Testament prophets. Jonah, uh, we got the question from the Lord, will you go where I send you and not run in the other direction and break free from the prejudices of your heart? He hated the Ninevites and he's told to go preach to the Ninevites. And he's like, I don't want to go. I'm going to go head in the other direction. And the Lord says, well, I'll get you there a different way. And when he goes and preaches, uh, there's this uh, dramatic repentance that takes place. And he doesn't like that. He goes to pout under a tree. I don't like it that you're bringing all these people to faith and they're repenting and coming to you. So Jonah breaks those prejudices. And we all have them. We all have prejudices in our hearts. It's part of our broken human condition. It's not one group or another. And then we talked about Micah uh, and how Micah, we hear this question from the Lord, will you allow me to shine through you into the darkness? In such times of darkness, will you, will you let my light shine? We're going to hear that when we begin to study Jesus and the message of Jesus. <clears throat> the prophet Nahum, 
the Lord asked this question, will you trust that I am true to my word? It's one of the things that's most questioned in the days that we live in. Well, is God's word really true? Can we really trust what God says? Yes, you can, you must trust what God says. I am true to my word. Habakkuk, the question that the Lord asks is, will you trust that I am at work even when things seem silent? God is never silent. He's just working quietly and you can't hear it. And maybe we need to listen in a little different way. But he is always at work, even when, and maybe especially when he seems silent. Zephaniah, the Lord asks this question, will you break free from the crusty complacence? That's really literally the way it was. And trust me as your mighty warrior. We get all afraid of this and afraid of that. He's our mighty warrior. You're really quiet. Would you say amen? Yeah, he is our mighty warrior. Haggai, uh, he was uh, the older guy, and he said, will you make my house your top priority? The Lord's speaking through him. Why are you all working on your homes and your fancy places, and you've left my house where my people gather uh, in shambles? And then Zechariah, we looked at last week, he was the young guy, and he said, will you find... The Lord asks, will you find shelter in the fortress of hope? Hang on to hope. Don't lose hope. Hang on to hope. Well, Malachi is the final minor prophet. And he wrote about 430 B.C. And just to orient you, because if you just turn a page, you wouldn't realize it. That's 100 years later. Another 100 years has gone by. And uh, the temple had, had been rebuilt, uh, and, and things were, were coming along in that way. And um, both Haggai and Zechariah, the old guy and the young guy team, they're gone. And he's the last guy standing. He's the last man standing, actually, in the whole first part of the Bible. He's the one we get to hear from. What was going on? What was he addressing? Well, the temple and the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt um, under uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. And both Haggai and Zechariah, they had promised glorious things if they would pay attention to that rebuilding. But the people were kind of saying, we're we're not seeing it. Where's all that blessing that you were talking about? Two more waves had come back from Babylon. Well, that's a lot. You know how that is. You you work 20 years and you get things set and your vineyards are going good. And then here's another 100,000 people that are moving in and trying to settle in and, and, uh, and get things going. So it's very, very difficult time. People had become disillusioned and disheartened with things. And there was a growing skepticism about God and whether God really loved his people. And their religion had degenerated to just kind of ritual, meaningless ritual. And that's the situation into which God spoke. It's not about idolatry like we talked about before, bringing idols into the temple and things like that. But boy, is it a powerful moment. God spoke into this time through Malachi. And it's interesting how clear he is. Of the 55 verses in Malachi 47 are spoken directly from God. That's a higher proportion than any other book in the whole Bible. Now, all of the Bible is God-breathed, but it's God talking. If, if somebody ever says, uh, well, I'd just like to hear God talk, uh, well, why don't you open Malachi? Uh, you might be surprised at some of the things that you'll find there. Uh, One of the authors that I I have enjoyed in this preparation is a guy named John Blanchard. And he said, it is is possible to read Malachi in less than 10 minutes, but impossible to read it comfortably. You can read it 
But boy, it's going to stir some things. It's going to challenge us. There's a lot of powerful things. You might have thought, oh yeah, Malachi, I think we hear about, I remember, I've heard that one. That's the one that they talk about on Stewardship Sunday and stuff like that. Well, there's a lot more in it than just Stewardship Sunday, I promise you. Malachi actually points us to the people of God and the look forward for the coming of Messiah and the glorious day of the Lord. So what I want to do is a little bit different. I want to read the very ending. Uh, We did that with uh, the book of Revelation. It's good to look at the ending so you know where we're going. But uh, the very ending, because it's the very ending, these are the last words of the Hebrew scripture. Before we, we turn a page and we're in gospels all of a sudden. And there, there, by the way, there's a 400-year gap in between. But I want us to, to just hear these six verses, uh, the very end of Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now let's stand and let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for all of your word. And I thank you for these final words of of what we call Old Testament or First Testament or Hebrew Testament. God, may we hear what you want us to hear. May we see the things that you want us to see. May we be apprehended by the truth you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So these are the very last words of the Hebrew Testament. And, you know, I often just stop when I hear last words. I mean, the last words of a person, the Last words of an event, the last words of a, of a script. And here's the last words of, of the Hebrew Testament. And they're very, very powerful. Uh, we aren't going to hear clearly again for another 400 years. What we hear about here is about the day of the Lord, and that's actually two times. It's the first advent of Jesus, which we know and celebrate. When we turn the page, that's where we're going to be. And, and then it's the second advent, the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, that actually Jesus does talk about. And we hear these things, the arrogant and the evildoers will be burned like stubble, and those who fear the name of the Lord are going to see something called the Son of Righteousness with healing. 
Uh, I don't know if you remember some of the hymns uh, speak of hail the son of righteousness. And you might have looked at it and said, well, wait a minute, I think that's spelled wrong. I think it's a mistake. It should say S-O-N of righteousness. No, this is correct. It's biblical. It is the prophecy of the coming of, of the brightness of the light of God in righteousness. Yes, it is the son of God as well. But it's spelled correctly here, and that's where that comes from, just so you know, we're aware of that and don't forget. Um, there's also this uh, reference about leaping like calves, and I, I love that. I, I've never let calves out of a stall and seen them leap. Has anybody done that? Anybody, I, what it reminded me of is we've got a little four-and-a-half-month-old puppy. And when I let him out in the front yard, he takes off. I mean, he's so happy. And he runs in circles. He bounds around and he wants to play and play and play. And that's a good image for us. The NIV says that the calves that frolic when they're let out. There's a joyous time in our future. Someone say amen. Are you excited for that? We need to know that that's coming. And it speaks well to the time that we're in. There's a reference to Elijah the prophet. And this also points to the first advent, the first coming of Jesus. In the Gospels, we see it's John the baptizer who is described in this way, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. So there's this same quote. This is where it comes from. This is the prophecy that it comes from. And it's a marvelous image about the healing of families that comes with the coming of Christ. But the one like Elijah, he's the next prophet who begins to preach and he begins to say, I'm I'm here to prepare the way of the Lord. I'm here to announce someone uh, that is so much greater than me that I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And so that's that's where we're going to be. And we're going to be looking into some of those scriptures uh, in in the months that are ahead. But there's a lot to deal with in Malachi before we get there. The people had grown resentful toward God. The manner of their offerings was dishonoring to God. They were not giving their best. And so there was a corruption of the temple and the sacrifices. Now, this isn't the same, as I mentioned, this isn't the same as when the people were worshiping idols on high places and taking on foreign gods and bringing idols into the temple. That was horrific in some of the previous times. But this is, it seems equally offensive to God what was going on here and so Malachi calls them to commitment that's the last word on our major truth if you study any commentary or any uh, message on Malachi uh, you will find it will talk about commitment it's usually the main word that is focused on it's about commitment it's about recommitment recommitting our lives and so we're going to dig in on some of that The name Malachi actually means messenger. And it's interesting because they're not even sure that was really his name. It it would be uh, in a way like if you said, uh, well, uh, that guy is coming, he's he's preacher. You know, I I had a guy out in Colorado, he was a neighbor, and he always, once he knew I was a pastor, he always called me preacher. And so uh, it's similar to that. I remember one time he called out in the night, he lived next door to us, and he said, hey, preacher. I said, yeah. He said, there's a bear outside. Okay, thank you for warning me. I looked outside, and indeed there was a bear outside. But Malachi is similar to that. So he is messenger. He is the messenger. 
His audience is the people of Judah who are coming back, who have been coming back. And the people uh, are very much waiting for the coming of Messiah. That's the age in which this is taking place. The book is called an oracle, which is different from other types of, um, of prophecy or other types of statements. It means, the word is Masah, and it means burden. So Malachi was burdened, and you, you can hear it in, in the book very much. He uses a unique literary style, which is fascinating. It's a conversation with God. Some call it a hypothetical conversation with God. Um, But I believe it very much is God talking, but he's also bringing back responses. And they probably are a mixture just of what God has heard and what Malachi has heard in the grumbling of the people. And it's, it's amazing. It's very pointed and very powerful. So the voice of the Lord is definitely prophetic in all of this, um, but the responses of the people are likely out of the grumbling of the people that he's heard. There's seven different um, uh, discussions like this, conversations. We're not going to go through them all, and, uh, but just if you want to read through and study them, this gives you an idea. They're sometimes called disputations uh, because there's this dispute going on with God, and uh, they get a little testy at points. But within these conversations, Malachi establishes or really calls forth what I'm going to call five holy habits. Now, what are holy habits? Um, Holy habits are things that that, uh, we do. They're practices that bring you close to God and and make you more holy. We study them all the time. Uh, Prayer is a holy habit. When you make a habit of prayer to the point that it's instinctive, it's just what you do. I begin every day with prayer, and I don't know how else to begin a day. Yeah, there's a temptation to check the news. Yeah, there's a temptation to look on Facebook, but I start the day with prayer because, really, there's no other way to start the day. The reading of the Bible, the study of the Bible, I begin my day in the Word because it's. I just found that to be the powerful grounding place to be. All the other stuff can wait. Amen? Amen. Uh, we talk uh, public worship. What you're doing right now is a holy habit. The fact that you got up on a Sunday and you said, well, where are we going to go? Where, what are we going to Well, it's Sunday. We're going to church. I, I don't know. I mean, that's the way I was raised. There was never a never question of what we're going to do today. And that's how we raised our children was, well, we're going to church. And even if we're out on vacation or even if, you know, if we're sick, we try to figure out a way to go to church. Because public worship It puts us in God's way so that God can speak to us and bring to us the things that we need. Uh, Serving, having that place where you serve. Well, that's just what I do. If I stop serving in one area, I'm going to start serving in another. Giving is another holy habit. There's a bunch of them. But there are, are five that I want to lift up out of Malachi for us. And the first one is the habit of gratitude. The Lord speaks and says, bring me, they're all bring me's, bring me gratitude. Now, it's a little odd the way that the conversation goes, because the Lord brings it up, and he says, I have loved you. I have, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? How? I've been seeing it lately. How have you loved us? Is the response. That's the response that's been going on. That's the grumbling that's been going on. 
And no matter how I read this, it stings. How have you loved us? Or how have you loved us? How have you loved us? That's the question that's being asked. You can almost see the rolling of the eyes. This is an arrogance. (laughs) And the truth is that the people had focused so much on their hardship that they were missing the blessing that was going on. The Lord makes it clear that, that Israel will be blessed, is continuing to be blessed far beyond her borders. And then he gives a reminder. He says, just look at the land of Edom. You remember Edom? Edom is the descendants of Esau. And they are in shambles. They are left to the jackals. Uh, They are being torn down. If you look around, you'll see that you could be grateful for the covering and the protection that you have. Boy, we need to do that every once in a while, don't we? You know, uh, I received received an email last evening from Mike Black. He's been our missionary for 26 years. And uh, he was expressing to you gratitude for your support and your gift. And he does that. He always writes. And he says... Uh, Thank you so much for your support, and here's some things that have been going on. The pandemic has uh, really affected our nation. Everything is shut down now. There are curfews. You cannot get into a hospital anywhere. Uh, Church is shut down by order of the government for the next four weeks. And it just hit me, you know, anytime I start to feel like we're having a hard time with a pandemic in a nation that has the greatest healthcare system in the world, look around a little bit, right? God loves us. And I just began praying and praying. And he wasn't complaining, just began praying and I wrote to him back. Look around a little bit. You know, it's so powerful to begin our day in gratitude. There are secular studies that point out if you begin your day in thanks for the things, pick one thing, be thankful for one thing, start your day that way. And it's so very powerful uh, in the way that our day is going to go. The second is bring me honor. Bring me honor. Honor is a really important thing in the Bible. God says it this way. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? You might think you're honoring me, but... I'm not seeing it. The word is one of my favorite Hebrew words. I know I've shared a few with you. (laughs) It's the word kabad. And it means to be heavier, make weighty. So when you honor someone, if I honor you, I make you weighty. That doesn't mean I take you out for uh, rich food, okay? What it means is that I, I, I give gravity to your thoughts and your presence. That's honor. I honor your presence with my connection and my presence. That, that's what it means. So when we honor God, we're giving God weight in our lives. When you honor father and mother, it means you give them gravity in your life. When you honor an elder or a leader in the church, you show that they carry weight in your life by honoring them. And so the people and the priests had lost this. Uh, and, and the Lord was saying, I'm not feeling very weighty in your life. In fact, he says in verse 6, you have despised my name. It's a really strong word. Baza means to disesteem, disrespect. Today, uh, they would say, you dissed me, man. (laughs) 
And that's what, and that's what God is saying. You've dissed me. Um, and it's a holy habit. It takes discipline to reverence and honor the name of the Lord, his word, and his church. That's why you're attending to the word of God right now is because you honor God's word. It's not because I'm so fun to listen to, but you're honoring God's word. The third holy habit is bring me your best. The priests, uh, we see in verse 8, were offering animals that were defective. They were lame. They were blind. This was forbidden in the book of Leviticus. And um, the Lord says this profanes or pollutes my table, the Lord's table. And it showed profound disrespect for God. Now the dialogue goes on here. But you say, what a weariness this is. Bringing these offerings, bringing the good, the best, the best of the best. What a weariness this is. And you snort at it. Wow. Note to self, I don't ever want to snort at God says the Lord of hosts. He goes on and says, this is cheating God. I was trying to relate to this because we don't bring animals in unless it's a service animal and we don't sacrifice those, okay? (laughs) We don't bring animals. That's not what we do in our day and time. But we bring offerings, all kinds of offerings. We bring our voice, we bring our our thoughts, we bring our attention, all kinds of things. But this is what popped in my mind. Um, We have a food pantry, And I love our food pantry. And I love that for a number of years, we've had this uh, beautiful receptacle out there for people to bring offerings, bring offerings of food, bring the things that are on the list, bring things that will be helpful, bring things that will be good. And we've often said, you know, if you're out shopping and you see a BOGO, have you ever been there and you said, I don't need to. We'll get two and bring one. Bring it, you know. Or, or look at the list and, and shop for the things that are especially needed. But here's what occurred to me. I don't know why this jumped in my mind. It wasn't too long ago we were cleaning out the pantry and we were looking through and we were looking at things. We said, what's the expiration on that? <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> How about this one? Well, 2014, but it still looks good. No, get rid of that. And it suddenly hit me. What, what if I started boxing that stuff up? the expired stuff, the stuff I, I wouldn't eat, and brought it by here and put it over there in the receptacle for the food pantry. You're really quiet because that's how, that's what, that's how it struck me. I thought, oh, oh my goodness. To give my worst instead of my best. And that's what God is talking about here. Bringing your best, not, not your leftovers, not the stuff you don't want. You know, I thought about it. What if I, I had a box of cereal? I wanted to try a new cereal, and, and I, yeah, I didn't like it, so I roll it up and put a clip on there and bring it down and put it in the food pan. No. And yet, we can fall into a habit of bringing our leftovers, can't we? Now, I love leftovers. I'm not talking about the really good ones, <laughs> the stuff you bring home from a really good restaurant. But we get in the habit of bringing our leftover time, our leftover energy, our leftover enthusiasm, our leftover passion, our leftover money. Well, if there's any time left, well, maybe we'll go to church. If there's any energy left, well, maybe I'll do something for the Lord. Uh, If there's any attention left, I think I'm kind of fading. 
I'll give a little bit of attention to the word of God. No, we need to give our very, very best. I was talking to one of our, our youth leaders last night after the service, and he said to me, you know, what we try to do when we, we build for, uh, we're doing the builds for our summer camp, and we're working on it, we say, well, here's, a, here's something old that we could use, and they have a rule, and it's right out of this scripture, it says, let's give God our best. Let's create, let's, let's bring our very best to what we are, are bringing before the young people to try to draw them to Christ. Bring your very best. It's very, very powerful. God doesn't want your leftovers. I mean, he says that here. I don't want the worst of the bunch or your expired groceries. The fourth thing gets into a kind of a difficult area. And so just hang in here. Bring me marital faithfulness. And he addresses it this way. The, the, pre, the priests had actually profaned the sanctuary of the Lord by marrying what they called the, the daughter of a foreign god. The point was not to reject marrying a foreign person, but to marry someone with foreign gods, someone outside of the faith. You know, Moses actually married a Cushite woman. That's an African nation. And so he, the thing of, of marrying in another race is not relevant. It's not in any way an issue if the person is of faith. But marriages outside of the faith were expressly forbidden because they could lead people into idolatry. But more than that, he, he talks about rejecting the wife of your youth. It's in chapter 2. There's a powerful teaching here. And let me just say before I begin to understand that if you are in Christ, do you understand there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Say amen. amen. And we need to know that. But there's some important things about how we treat marriage in our culture. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. God's not accepting your offering and your groaning and your weeping and your crying. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Really important. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? He's present in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, some of you have heard uh, the teaching, and it's actually from this verse, God hates divorce. Many of the translations, that's how this is translated. It is, this is said to be one of the most difficult verses in the whole Bible to translate. What you have in ESV up there is the literal translation, and it is understood to mean God hates divorce. It's very evident in there. We need to know that. But here's, here's the other thing you need to know. 
God does not hate divorcees. Someone say amen, please. Because that's where the church has failed when they have approached it in this way. Well, we're going we're gonna to push you away. We're going we're gonna to disrespect you because you're a divorced person. That's not what the Bible teaches. We're going to actually study more this fall about divorce. It's important for us to study. Why does God hate divorce? Because it hurts people. There's a number of other reasons. He, he, he is present in the covenant that was made. It hurts him, but it hurts people. And, and I don't know where else it's more plain. He covers, the one who divorces covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. I don't know a divorce that I've ever um, counseled or worked with or been near that was not painful. And, uh, and, and you know, people have told me, well, we're going to have a friendly, nice divorce. And I say, well, no, you won't. Yeah. And, and I, I, it's 40 years of experience talking. So we learn a lot of things. And, and, and uh, from this, we learn a great deal about marriage. This is a really major text. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. It's not a contract that you can go and tear up. Um, God is a witness between you and the wife of your youth. And he is the one, the husband of your youth. And he is the one who makes them one. A portion of his spirit is present in the union. This is so powerful. The one who divorces covers his garment with violence. So divorce is a violent sort of an act. Um, You know, I thought about it sometimes that if we really take seriously scripture that says the two shall become one, they become one, then divorce is a form of spiritual amputation. And so it's painful. Now, does this mean that divorce is an unforgivable sin? The Bible never teaches that. The only unforgivable sin is to reject the grace and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. We can study that at another time as well, but that's, that's the unforgivable sin. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach that divorce is unforgivable, but we must call divorce what it is. It's a failure. It's, it is therefore a sin. And people will say, well, it wasn't my fault. It was mostly not your fault, but we all participate in our pain. And I'm so sorry. I'm so sad. Let's pray and bring it to the Lord. When we confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive our sin and to cleanse us of whatever unrighteousness we have. We need to repent and we need to turn back to him for the repair that can be done. The problem is our culture doesn't even pretend to value marital faithfulness. On television shows and movies, it's just a big joke. And I hear about people in workplaces who cover for friends who are having affairs and this kind of thing. And, and people prepare and they joke about, well, you know, th- this was my, my learner spouse and I'm going to have another and probably another and things like this. This is not the teaching of Jesus. We're, we're going to get to the teaching of Jesus on this in, in a, a couple of months. The fifth thing is bring me your first. And it's in Malachi chapter 3. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. We heard that last week, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And God says, will man 
rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, well, how, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out for you a blessing until there is no more need. Wow, (laughs) what a promise, no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, the things that devour your life and your wealth so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So people have asked me, is failing to tithe an unforgivable sin? Am I just just lost? The Bible does not teach this. The Bible says decide in your heart what to give. But this is the promise. It's, it's not in any way an unforgivable sin, but it is kind of unbelievably stupid in my mind. You can chuckle. I'm getting to be an older preacher so I can be crusty and direct, okay? I'll just say for me, I would never dream of not, of not tithing. It's the one place in the Bible where God says, put me to the test, test me in this. When uh, Pastor Ann and I were... Uh, getting ready to get married. She began tithing to the church that she worked at. She said, I I need uh, $36 a week for my gas and and for my car payment. And so she was working uh, uh, several decades ago. And uh, and so the pastor said, well, how much do you want? How much do you need to be paid? And she said, "I, I need $40 a week because I need to tithe. And she gave $4 a week. It may have seemed silly to the treasurer looking at these little $4 checks, but you know, the $4 became $10, became $100, became $1,000, became $10,000, okay? So tithing is just the way that we participate with God in what he is doing, but even more, it's a way that God chooses to open blessing into our lives. I can't imagine not tithing. Malachi, so to review, calls us to these five holy habits. And he's, you know, just to review them, bring me your gratitude. Bring me uh, your gratitude. And then you'll find yourself uh, in blessing and provision and protection. Give thanks for his blessing. Any of you blessed today? I'm just so blessed today. Give thanks to him. Bring me your best your best energy, your best time, your best effort, uh, your best enthusiasm. Bring me your honor. Make God weighty in your life. When someone asks you to do something, say, I need to check with my boss. You know, that's not a put off to say, I need to pray about that. I know what I like to do, but I need to talk to God. God is weighty in my life, whatever it might be. Bring him honor. In the way we come into worship, in the way that we, we uh, are worshiping together, the things that we bring. Bring me your faithfulness. You know, someone asked recently, they said, we celebrated 43 years of marriage. It's pretty good for this young bride over here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
And someone asked me, they said, well, how do you, get, how do, you do that? How do you get to 43? And I used to, I used to teach on this. I've got, I'll tell you 10 things that you need to do, okay? But uh, here, here in two words, don't quit. Amen? Now, there's a lot of other things, but don't quit. We took seriously the thing that says to have and to hold. And so we hold on to each other until we are parted by death, okay? Uh, we need to work to create a culture of faithfulness in everything that we do. That's why we have the marriage conferences. That's why we have a marriage class. That's why we have marriage teachings on, on different nights of the week. That's why we have marriage cruises. And the finally is, final one is to bring me your first. Test me in the tithe. You might say, well, I've, I've never really done that. I've never really thought about that. Well, take a step. Move in that direction. Or test a minute. Just see what happens. Every person that I've talked to that did that, they were kind of overwhelmed. I want to close a little bit different. I want to ask you um, to make some affirmations. And these are just right from the questions that we asked at the beginning of this message. Um, and they are simply, I, I will be faithful to you, God Almighty, from the book of Hosea. Um, I will trust you even in times of disaster. They're just right in response to the questions that come from the scripture. What I want to do is invite you to stand and let's affirm these together as we close this study, as we close the Old Testament uh, part of our study this year. Ready? And, you, and don't say the name of the prophet. We'll just leave that. We'll, we'll just know that. We'll just know that, okay? Ready? I will be faithful to you, God Almighty. I will trust you even in times of disaster. I will clear out the empty noise of worship to hear your voice. I will allow you to display your strength in my weakness. I will go where you send me as you crush the prejudices of my heart. I will seek to shine your light into the darkness. I will trust that you are true to your word. I will trust that you are at work even when you seem silent. I will break free from complacence and trust you as the mighty warrior. I will make building up your body my top priority. I will seek my shelter in you as a prisoner of hope. I will commit to bring my very best and my very first to you, God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that speaks into our time, into our lives, into this season. May we be found faithful in our response. In Jesus' name, amen. I love to be a part of a church that makes declarations, don't you? Isn't it good to be around people that love Jesus? As we depart today, I want to encourage you to go out and have some fun at our Christian education celebration. There's hot dogs out there, Pastor Jeff. If, don't, don't leave yet. Because I know he'll want to get right in there. But there's ice pops and there's snacks out there. We hope you'll hang around and enjoy some fellowship and celebrate those that are serving so faithfully. Now, next week we begin a new study and we're going to be working through the Sermon on the Mount, the key central teaching of Jesus. Uh, there are a few things that could be as important for us to know and to dig into. We're going to call it kingdom culture when earth looks like heaven. I hope you'll be here. I hope you'll bring a friend. I hope you'll invite people, connect people online, 
as we uh, continue the ministry of the Word of God. And don't forget about tithes and offerings and these different ways that you can give. Let us go forth in Jesus' name as prisoners of hope, captured by his grace, held in his heart to share the good news of Jesus. Amen.